News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Probably complained at some point about spending money on an item that just does not stand the test of time. And maybe you've had the thought like I have, like, boy, they really don't make stuff the way they used to. And, you know, that's very true. Just look at some of these archaeological finds from thousands of years ago, like the ancient Romans who were very skilled builders and engineers. What was it about how they built things that have made them so durable? And what, if anything, have we learned from them? Well, Dr. Admir Masik is an associate professor of civil and environmental engineering at MIT and joins us now to talk about this. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. Was there something about the way that the ancient Romans built things that have made them last so long? Yeah, it looks like they, they had this uh, concrete that is similar to our modern concrete. Nevertheless, uh, their concrete has the... Uh, Self-healing capability, whereas our modern Industrial Revolution one uh, is not healing. <laughs> what do you mean self-healing? What does that mean? Yeah, so they just uh, made a, a material in a specific uh, manner that allowed them to uh, to have a, a concrete that uh, has uh, reservoirs of self-healing agent that is ready to kick in when the crack is formed through the through the structure. So imagine the Pantheon, this huge dome that looks like intact in Rome uh, is 2,000 years old and probably has this capability of self-healing. And uh, every time a little crack is formed, uh, there are these reservoirs that uh, produce uh, material and fill the crack. Okay, so preventing the structure from degrading. Why don't we do the same thing? Yeah, we are trying to do it now that we know. Uh, that these uh, uh, specific uh, ingredients and the way how Romans mix, uh, you know, uh, might uh, uh, affect and change our way how we make our modern concrete so that uh, it does embed uh, the self-healing capability. So, Dr. Mesa, can you give us an idea? What, what are those ingredients that are so special and what was different about how they were mixing their concrete? Yeah, so I can start with this describing how we make concrete. We yes. take uh, uh, basically a limestone uh, and mix it with clays and then heat up at a very high temperatures, 1500 degrees C uh, in a, these spe- special kilns. Uh, this basically leads to a material clinker that is uh, homogeneously then uh, producing a, a straightening agent uh, in the concrete uh, uh, after mixed with uh, gravel and, and sand. So that uh, uh, agent basically is very homogeneous. Romans uh, arrived to a very similar uh, product, final product, but starting with the limestone processing and mixing with volcanic ash. So creating some sort of a heterogeneous uh, 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 mix. And that heterogeneity eventually leads to uh, formation of, of uh, these uh, reservoirs that I mentioned before. Reservoirs also due to the fact that they would use uh, specific type of lime. It's called quick lime, and the process is called hot mixing because this quick lime uh, reacts with water in the exothermic manner and eventually uh, basically uh, creates a heterogeneous mix. And that, that's what then allows the, the material to, um, you know, uh, heal those cracks. Hmm. Is it so, possible to uh, mass produce that Roman technique? I mean, we are working on that. And, of course, it's a technique that has been used. And, you know, we, the hot mixing is a method that is well known to us. Nevertheless, we never applied it to modern analogs. And that's where we are currently working, also translating this ancient technology into modern context. It's amazing that it's taken us this long, though, to, to, to do this, right? What, what happened? That's true. <laughs> I mean, there are many reasons for, for this. Uh, 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 there, there are decades of studies. Uh, uh, many of uh, my colleagues, uh, you know, terribly studied this, this material. Nevertheless, uh, uh, there was a confusion about these inclusions, why the inclusions of, uh, of lime that... Um, we're told that uh, are there just because Romans would not mix properly their their uh, concrete, and and that was kind of difficult for me to believe because uh, the Romans put so much attention 
in their materials, and they really maintained the recipe uh, constant through entire em- empire. So imagine from UK to you know uh, down uh, northern Africa and Middle East, they they really put so much attention uh, in uh, in uh, uh, mixing and making this fundamental material for their infrastructure. Now that they were would make him bad mixing every time they would make this their concrete which very it was very difficult for me to believe in and 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 so this is where basically we started to to think that quick climb and hot mixing might be even though it was a, a crazy idea because quick climb is uh, reacting with water violently so the temperatures go up to to even in some spots to 200 degrees c so imagine uh, 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 for for us to think that they would heat up their concrete and in, in such a violent uh, manner, uh, so that probably led us to believe that they 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 didn't use it. Uh, nevertheless, uh, evidence, scientific evidence, shows that uh, quick climb was used in their mixes, and therefore uh, now we, we we start to believe that actually that's a, an option. And eventually, um, yeah, with uh, with uh, our work here at MIT, uh, uh, we we are showing that it's some, something extremely feasible, even in the modern context. So, did we think that we had improved it? Like we thought we thought we were doing it better, and then it goes. You go back and look at it again, and think, well, no, maybe they were onto something. Yeah, I, I think I think we might uh, be, you know, able now to integrate uh, self-healing uh, capability, which which is something that our concretes can have, but at the costs that are not, uh, uh, you know, uh, accessible for common normal uh, uh, streamlined construction. And maybe with this insight from Romans, we might uh, be able now to produce uh, uh, cost-effective self-healing concrete, which is really, uh, which was the bottleneck for, you know, self-healing uh, property to be implemented in, in the standard construction industry. Right. So I guess we can always learn a little something from the way things <laughs> used to be done, right? Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it conceptually, we humans uh, did uh, put a lot of effort in optimizing their materials and technologies. And uh, this is like a biology, you know, evolution biology. There is evolution in, in uh, uh, materials processing, which is the uh, fruit of error, <laughs> you know, success and error and, and uh, slowly, you know, uh, eliminating things that do not work and, and maintaining things that do work. And, and that evolution of materials uh, uh, technology uh, is definitely something that led to something optimized for a specific function. And if we are able to kind of understand uh, 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 that mater- those mater- ancient materials better, probably we will be able to uh, tackle uh, um, challenges that our society is facing uh, in the very near future and sustainability of, of our materials through that ancient wisdom. Let's put it in this way. Right. Well, I'm glad you're on the job. Dr. Masik, thank you for your time. Thank you for uh, having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Edmir Masik, who's an Associate Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at MIT, where they are studying the concrete used by ancient Romans. Uh, It has been so incredibly durable. It has kind of self-healing properties. And only now are we starting to understand it better. In fact, it wasn't until 2014 that these engineers and researchers and scientists were actually able to figure out what exactly it was about the Roman concrete that made it so special. This is Mornings with Simi. Really can't escape this movie or any movie, it seems like these days, because they're trying to convince you go to the movie theater, see Barbie, see Oppenheimer, see Mission Impossible. And we're going to talk a lot about blockbusters, but let's talk about Barbie. Scott Chance is with us this morning. Scott, this thing, I can't escape this oh, movie. Oh, yeah. It's going to be huge. I, like, I want to see it. Oh, absolutely. There's already people who are predicting that there's going to be the spin offs, that this is going to turn into a franchise, which I think we're learning. And like you said, we're going to talk about Barbie and Oppenheimer and Mission Impossible and blockbusters later. But I think it's sure to do very, very well at the box office. I don't know. I don't know. I Like, if, if people have not already been convinced to go to the movie theater, I'm not sure that Barbie is going to help them to do that. There's only one reason why I would go see this movie, if I did. Okay. 
Ryan Gosling. Yeah, and the buzz around him is really, really good. Uh, apparently, he like steals the scenes from Margot Robbie and stuff. But what's really interesting to me is that we're getting a Barbie movie right now. Like this has been in development for a while. Initially they wanted Amy Schumer to play the main character. Now Margot Robbie is is obviously the main character with Greta Gerwig directing. But just the, I want to talk about the character of Barbie who has managed to endure uh, all of these years and all of this scrutiny and everything up until up until now. Uh, you know, I have a six-year-old daughter. I have a two-year-old daughter yes. as well. My six-year-old is very into Barbies. We've got the dream house. We've got the Corvette. We've got the helicopter. And I had the Barbie Winnebago when I was a kid. She has that too. Sorry. She has oh, no, that. This thing was huge. <laughs> We've got it all, thanks to some awesome grandparents. But my daughter loves to be Barbie and loves to play with Barbie. And the thing that I love about watching her do that is she can be and turn Barbie into sure. Whatever she wants. Well, there's astronaut Barbie. There's Dr. Barbie. Like, you name it. Oh, yeah. Barbie has been Italian. She's been Indian. She's been Mexican. She's been African-American. She has been a CEO. She's been a paleontologist. Uh, Mattel recently made a line of bald Barbies to give to chemotherapy patients. Like, this doll has managed to do, I think, so much good. But in the midst of that, has also faced, like, quite a bit of scrutiny and has endured, you know? Yeah. And this, I noticed Mattel, they've really gone all out this time around. Like you would have thought that for some toys, maybe it was the twilight years, you know, kids move on. Right. Not so. This is more Barbie than there has ever been before. And I think that is that's... Skipper in this movie? Uh, there are other Barbie characters. I having not Malibu seen Stacey it yet. in this movie? <laughs> Excellent Simpsons reference. Thank you. I think the Barbies are all called Barbie and the Kens are all called Ken. I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know for sure. But I think the idea is that anyone can be Barbie. Like in the things that Barbie does, anyone can do that and you can take those and apply them to your life. And uh, yeah, some people are still kind of trying to criticize and scrutinize because, you know, there is some perhaps unrealistic beauty standards there, but I think that that didn't start with Barbie and it certainly won't end with Barbie. What's also interesting about this case is what Mattel is doing here as a company. So Mattel took a look at what Marvel did with their right. brand and and decided we can do this too. So that's why they have branched into now movie making. They used to do the cartoons and they've now just moved beyond that. Right. They want Barbie to become, they want to make it a brand that is across everything. Yeah. And I mean, we know how big Marvel has been and how big superheroes have been. And I think there's no reason why this can't be the same. And if it continues to bring that, po- what I think is a positive message for young girls, I'm all for it. My, you know what? A lot of parents would agree with you on that one, too. Lots of kids grew up with it. I grew up with it. My kids grew up with it. And they and they love it, right? They have a, a warm memory of it, too. Yeah. So fascinating times to deal with stories like this. Scott, thank you. My pleasure. And there will be more to come about movies as well. But the Barbie movie is, is looking to be a big one this year. Now, would you go see that? Is there any movie right now that you would go see? Let us know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer. There's a lot for us to talk about today. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. Vaughn, I can't think of another story like this Surrey policing one where every single time there's an announcement, we everybody thinks, oh, this is it. We're going to get a decision. And then once again, we're disappointed because it feels like that again. Yeah, although I see Solicitor General, Minister of Public Safety, Mike Farnworth, says that uh, what we're going to hear tomorrow is going to be a final decision. Uh, Now, of course, that decision isn't entirely within his hands, since the mayor of Surrey, is uh, Brenda Locke, is saying, well, if the province decides to block Surrey going back to the RCMP, that's not the end of it. That she'll fight. So, you know, is it the last act? But the thing I'm finding interesting is the way that the discussion over the last few days has opened us up to a new narrative. And that new narrative, what's next, is if the province turns down Surrey for the RCMP return as expected and does it because of the doubts that Premier David Eby has expressed about the future of the RCMP in this country, uh, does that immediately move us to a narrative about, well, what's BC's long-term plan? Are we going to have a provincial police force? 
It's been talked about for years. If, our, if the RCMP is getting out of local policing, as federal government has hinted, well, we're going to need our own police force here in BC, and it's going to take a while to set that up. You can't do those things overnight either. Could this be the announcement then of some longer term plan? Whether it's the announcement or not, you know, this narrative has gotten out of provincial control. Uh, the Premier is the one who said last week in Winnipeg at the Premier's conference, David Eby said, Ottawa needs to tell us what the future of the RCMP is in this country because it doesn't look as if it's sustainable at the moment. So whatever they say tomorrow, Simi, there's going to be questions. Okay. You know, what's next? Uh, is the province going to finally get going on the recommendation it got last year from an all-party committee of the legislature, which is that BC should be looking at doing what Ontario and Quebec have, ever done, have already done, what BC has discussed in the past. We're going to have a provincial police force. Alberta's looking at it. Other provinces that don't have one are looking at it. And they're all doing it, Simi, because of the hints from Ottawa that ah, in the long run they'd like the RCMP to turn into a national police force. But the federal government kind of regards these local and city forces as a bit of a nuisance, expensive, not really a long-term solution. And they'd like to get out of the business of providing contacted contract policing. So the Prime Minister even hinted about this yesterday, saw an yeah. interview that he did with um, CTV Atlantic, where yeah. he did not say that he believed in local policing for the RCMP. Yeah, no, I mean, the impetus for this is that awful case in Nova Scotia, no question about yes. that. Yes. But, you know, the federal government has hinted at this before, and, and so has British Columbia. So you go back to when we signed, the province signed its last contract, with the RCMP, so way back, you know, 10, 12 years, uh, before the deal was done, the province said, hey, you know, we want more control over RCMP here in BC, and if we don't get it, we're going to look at a provincial police force. So the federal government went, yeah, okay, fine, sure. You know, <laughs> that's something that yes. we care about, right? But anyway, they made a deal. And they made a deal on a 20-year contract, but in, in all the provinces are still in. That contract expires early in the next decade. But now I was really struck by what Danielle Smith of Alberta said last week. Her, her, she's already talked about an Alberta provincial police force. The thing she said is Ottawa has got to tell the provinces where it's headed on this because you can't start a provincial police force overnight. And you've got to think about recruitment and staffing and all that. And you've got to have an agreement to phase out the RCMP and phase in your provincial force. So it's not premature to start talking about it now because uh, you're going to have to get going on it and Ottawa's got to tell the provinces where it's headed. Now, that story in the Toronto Star that we talked about yesterday, uh, Simi, where uh, the Toronto Star said, well, that's the thinking in Ottawa is, yeah, uh, there's a time limit on the RCMP. It doesn't necessarily have a future providing local policing services. That story also said, and the federal government says it's already been talking to the provinces on this. Well, of course, reporters asked Mike Farmworth about that yesterday, and he mm -hmm. said, well... We've had a couple of meetings with them, but we don't consider those consultations. They're more kind of, here's what's on the radar screen and let's think about it. There, there needs to be a very serious and I think expedited discussion on this so that BC can get to thinking itself about its own provincial police force. Having said all that, given the doubts, I think that's one of the main reasons, Simi, why the expectation over here in Victoria is that the announcement tomorrow will be, no, we're not going back to the RCMP in Surrey because we don't believe, the provincial government, that the RCMP has a long-term future providing contract policing services anywhere in British Columbia except perhaps in remote northern and rural communities. There's a very important case that we want to continue the conversation about, and that has to do with these two children who were badly, badly abused. Uh, nobody checked in on them for months and months, and there are some updates on that. So, Vaughn, uh, what else have you learned about this? 
Well, the judge in the case has posted his reasons for sentencing. So these children were horribly abused. Uh, one died from that abuse. Um, the two foster parents in the case pleaded guilty. They've been sentenced to 10 years for manslaughter and six for aggravated assault. The judge's reasons have been posted. They're on the provincial court site. They run about 20 pages. I, I hesitate to re recommend them to anybody, but I think it's important that we digest how awful this case was. Mm -hmm. And it, it, the thing that really stands out in the judge's judgment is he, uh, Judge Peter La Prairie, provincial court judge, was shaken himself. He, he, he watched. There, Incredibly, Simi, there are 400 hours of videos of the treatment of these children uh, in their home. And he watched a bunch of those, and he says, you know, that what happened is incomprehensible. And when you see it, as I said, he's shaken. But he says a couple of other things, too, in this case, Simi. And one of the things that he says, there's a, there's a phrase in the judgment, no one did anything. He says that five times in the judgment. Like, you get a sense of a whole system that failed these children. So uh, the foster parents are, are guilty of just unspeakable crimes, and they've been sentenced. But he also, the judge also says, Ministry of Children and Family Development, they, they assigned to these children, Indigenous, uh, took them away from their birth parents, Indigenous, and gave them to the foster parents, Indigenous. And he says that the ministry never, then never really checked up on the children. Seven months of abuse, ministry never checked in. Here's something else. The children were pulled out of school by the foster parents. Education system never, never asked where the little boy was, why he wasn't in school. He was taken out of school. And for months, nobody asked where he was. Uh, the judge says uh, the little boy had chronic health problems. He needed to take medication every day. He needed to see doctors. For months, he never saw a doctor. Healthcare system never noticed, never asked where he was. And the community itself, now the judge is understanding about this. There is plenty in there about the, the toll that things like residential schools and colonialism and chronic abusive substances and all that, that toll it took on the indigenous community. But having said that, the judge says that the foster mother's brother lived with these children never reported what was going on. The children were abused publicly, out of doors. Nobody seems to have noticed. So when you see that nobody did anything, Simi, it just haunts you. And you do ask, the judge doesn't say, he's a judge, right? How we should proceed, except he does say. All these issues need to be addressed. So are we going to get the kind of full-blown inquiry with testimony and looking at all these issues going forward? I don't know. I certainly would say that the internal review by under Mitzi Dean, the Minister of Children and Family Development, is not good enough. Now, we expect that the independent child and youth representative, Jennifer Charlesworth, will look into this case and will report out, and she has a good reputation for, mm -hmm. you know, saying saying what actually happened but i do go there needs to be more here this simi that's a, it's a societal worse, failure yeah i'm that's, yeah. it's a complete yeah. failure yeah see there can't be a worse case in the history of that ministry and there have been some awful cases over the years but these children were taken away from their birth parents by the state by the ministry of children and family development using government authority they followed the guideline to give the children to an indigenous family, and the woman, foster mother, was a cousin of the birth mother, so it made sense. But, you know, I, I just say, I, you read this thing over, you know, the, the judge says that the little boy, when he was uh, died of a blunt in injury to his head, uh, looked like a child of the Holocaust for sake. Uh, the other awesome. details, I, I would hesitate to repeat them on a radio audience just because they're the kind of thing that you'd want to send uh, younger members of your family out of the room before they hear what was done here. But it really is, uh, this case needs more attention 
going forward. I think that's what the judge said. And that phrase, no one did anything, has got to haunt everyone, everyone in British Columbia. Uh, I agree. I agree. You're right. There's definitely more to talk about with this horrible case. Vaughn, thank you for updating us on it. Bye-bye. This is Mornings with Simi. Know who's working overtime these days? Criminal profilers, especially in the United States. This arrest in the Long Island serial killer case has caused all sorts of examination about, you know, police investigative techniques, about motivation for murder, about everything having to do with this case, actually. And our next guest knows how this works all too well. She was a senior profiler for the FBI until her retirement. She helped capture and try to understand people like Gary Ridgway, known as the Green River Killer, even Ted Kaczynski. So Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole is also the directing professor at the Forensic Science Program at George Mason University and joins us now. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. So have you been taking a look at this Long Island case then, and and what what strikes you about it? I have, and there are many, many aspects to the case that I think are are very, very interesting. And one of them is that this is someone that was able to fly under the radar screen of law enforcement for so many years. And when I see that happening in a serial murder case, it's generally because when they're not out committing their murders, they are living what appears to be a pro-social life, which means they have a family, they have a job, they have, a ch- they have children, their neighbors report them as being a nice guy. Um, and so all of those trappings of normalcy uh, enable them to live a life and appear to be just a law-abiding citizen and not a serial sexual killer. Right, but that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case here, though, does it, Dr. O'Toole? Because all, a lot of the neighbors are saying, no, we suspected something. Well, the neighbors could have suspected something, but the issue is they never suspected that he was a serial sexual killer because otherwise they would have come forward. So now in hindsight, and this happens a lot, people will say, oh, yeah, well, there was something I did notice one time. But, you know, frankly, these these individuals that commit these kinds of crimes, there's nothing really physically about them that's alerting. So I think at this point, now that they know what he's suspected of doing, now they kind of go back in their mind and say, okay, well, there was this time when. But to be able to jump to um, and, and, you know, kind of forecast ahead of time that this is a serial sexual killer, that didn't happen. We've heard a lot about how important um, cell phone data is in these cases, right? Like it was clearly a significant factor here. It was a significant factor in that recent case of the four students who were killed at university just south of the border here from us. So is it, has, have investigative techniques changed and evolved? Is that cell phone data making it somehow easier to track these cases? It really is. And it's amazing advance. It's an amazing advance in technology. It's very complicated and it's it's very involved, but the ability to do what you've seen in the Idaho case and now here in New York um, is is really changing investigation. So now they can um, triangulate where somebody is when they use their cell phones and even a burner phone, which is very difficult to track historically. And they're able then to place somebody in different locations, locations where the person may look you in the eye and say, well, I've never been there. Well, their cell phones or even their burner phones tell another story. And that's what they were able to do in this case. They triangulated to where he lived and then to where he worked, and they overlapped. So it took a long time to do that. It's very complicated, but it's amazing when you get results like they did. Right. We talk about burner phones. Most people think that those are safe and anonymous. That's why you buy them, right? Right, because, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, not so much. Okay, so is this something that police forces are getting better at? They are. They're getting better at it, but it's an area of expertise. It's just not something that you learn when you go through the police academy as a, um, you know, a, a regular police officer or a regular FBI agent. It's something that does require a certain level of expertise and a lot of training to be able to um, to be able to do this, 
Is there a concern, though, that there would be an adaptation to that, too? I mean, it was quite shocking to think that, you know, cell phone data is what gets people in because you can be tracked everywhere you use a cell phone. So you have to hope, I guess, that your perpetrator took their phone with them. Well, you do. And, and, you know, offenders are, um, you know, they adapt. there, There will be people right now that are, either involved in similar behavior or contemplating similar behavior. And they're watching the news reports. They're listening to this radio program. And they're saying, that would never happen to me because here are the precautions that I'm going to take with my cell phone to make sure that never happens. So the offenders will are very adaptable, and they will change uh, based on what they, how, they, how they learn and what they learn in the media. So the cases that you worked on, Dr. O'Toole, like so varied, right? Everything from Gary Ridgway to Ted Kaczynski to the Zodiac case. What was the similarity that you saw? What is the thread that runs through them? Well, the one thread that's really um, prominent is that with these individuals who are serial sexual killers, uh, the FBI estimates that about 95% of them have what we call a a psychopathic personality. And as a matter of fact, the world's expert in psychopathy is right there in Canada, a very dear friend of mine, Dr. Robert Hare, who has researched this, uh, this personality for nearly 50 years. And the scientific results are amazing because what they've determined is that this kind of personality, it's not a mental illness. It is a personality that has certain specific traits and one of those traits uh, for example is lack of empathy for other people Uh, these are individuals that are big risk takers but they're very glib and charming so these 20 traits that exist in this personality construct we think are um, exist in especially serial sexual killers who go out and commit these kinds of crimes um, without the slightest bit of remorse when they come back home later that night and have hamburger and french fries with their families as though nothing happened. That's when you put it that way, you go, Oh my goodness. Uh, So what questions do you still have about this? What information are you still looking for? Well, my biggest question is what is the full extent of this individual's lethality? And we do know that when people engage in this kind of behavior, it does not start at 59 years of age. So even going back 10 or 15 years, he would have been um, in his mid uh, 40s or early 40s. This is the kind of behavior you, you begin to see late teens or early 20s where they start to actually act out um, with, homic- with homicidal behavior. So we don't know the full extent. We don't know his what we call practice murders. This is so interesting. I learned this in the FBI because we work serial murder cases on a daily basis. So we saw this on a, a regularly, that these individuals don't wake up and just decide, I like this kind of victim. I like this kind of weapon. I know these are the words I could say to somebody so that they won't be afraid of me. They have to practice that. And those practice murders can take years to develop. And those are the murders investigators are looking for because they can include um, people that um, are different age. This offender could have crossed over gender lines. So it really is important to have an open mind when you go back to look for the full extent of their lethality is how we word it. Fascinating stuff. Thank you for your time on that today. You are most welcome. That's Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole, a former FBI behavioral profiler and directing professor of the Forensic Science Program at George Mason University. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about bears. It is bear season out there. We are very familiar with them in the Lower Mainland, especially in certain neighborhoods. We already have too much of a problem with bears becoming habituated to humans. But, you know, mostly when we talk about that, that's black bears, right? What about grizzlies? Well, we tend to think of grizzlies as scary, as territorial killers, as something to really be afraid of. So why then is Parks Canada hiring Indigenous wildlife guardians to teach people that grizzly bears are not necessarily what we think they are? Well, Joy Spear Chief Morris is an Indigenous and African-American journalist and national news reporter for The Globe and Mail, has written about this actually in the Narwhal, joins us now to talk more about it. Joy, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So what have you learned about grizzly bears? 
I have learned an awful lot about grizzly bears in the last year. I've, I've learned um, some interesting biological and, um, I guess, environmental facts about grizzly bears. I've learned their importance in the environment. I've also learned a lot of cultural and spiritual uh, importance of grizzly bears. And I've also learned that a lot of myths and um, preconceptions that we have towards grizzly bears in the media and in Western culture might actually not be correct. Okay, in what way? What do you mean? So from the many people that I talked to, there is this conception that, you know, grizzly bears are these, you know, big territorial man eaters. You know, we see it in movies and on television all the time. You know, we had there was just cocaine bear that came out. We also um the Reverend has that big famous scene of Leonardo DiCaprio being, you know, mauled by an angry grizzly bear in the woods. But from the biologists and the um, grizzly bear conservationists and the experts that I talked to, a lot of that is actually not true. So grizzly bears um, evolved to be on the prairies um, here in Canada, out in open spaces. That's their biology. And because of um, colonialism and settlers, they were pushed into the woods. And one of the biologists I talked to says that this goes all the way back to, you know, like Lewis and Clark days where um, settlers were coming with guns and they were finding grizzly bears and hunting them and they were shooting at them. And over time, enough grizzly bears were killed that they were pushed into the woods. And this negative stereotype of people equals guns started to be reinforced with bears and with people. And so, you know, you, sh- you shoot at bears, bears are going to start attacking you. And it created this negative relationship. And it also created this negative storytelling that we've told over, over years and years that if you run into a grizzly bear, it's going to attack you. Okay, so what is going to happen then? So the more likely uh, situation that you're going to run into from the other... Um, biologists and conservationists that I was talked to is that you most likely are going to see a grizzly bear and the bear is going to see you and nothing's going to happen. <laughs> a lot of the times that the situation that you're going to run into is that bear will see you and will continue about its ways. Um, a lot of the situations where we see people getting into more aggressive encounters with bears are usually um, related to, you know, people leaving food out on campgrounds or, You know, there's people with dogs that are off leash is a big one. Dogs scare bears and bears will then become, you know, aggressive towards a dog. That's another one. Or it may just be um, a moment of surprise. The actual statistics of people being attacked by bears are actually a lot lower. A lot more grizzly bears are actually killed by people than the other way around. So as long as you're being bear safe out in the woods, like out in the woods, if you're out hiking and you're making lots of noise, you know, you're talking loudly, you're calling out to the bears here and there. Um, You always have bear spray on you in the event that, you know, there is an unfortunate encounter where the bear is taken by surprise and you're taken by surprise. But if you're acting smart and the bear knows where you are, like most likely the bear is not going to be too bothered with you. I guess, Joy, what I worry a bit about, though, is if if people absorb that message, then will they not take it seriously enough, right? Like we already have trouble with humans getting too close to bears. It is true. And I think that is a lot of criticism that people have is that, you know, if we think about bears as being, you know, just docile that, um, you know, they're not going to hurt us and that we can kind of just do whatever we want. But I think it also is important to understand that we need to respect grizzly bears as wild animals. They are wild animals. And in any case, you don't want to go up and pet a wild animal. Um, and I think it is just a matter of having respect and, and giving space. So that's why you are usually supposed to be loud when you're out in the woods is to, you know, give wild animals a heads up that you're there and give them the space. Like most wild animals don't want to come, come up to you if you, if you're familiar with, you know, being outside, like a lot of times they want to stay away from you. So a lot of that is, you know, just being very smart and understanding that this is a wild animal. If I try and go and pet it, obviously it's going to try and attack me. Um, and you know, Bears are also individuals in themselves. Not every single bear is going to think of people in the nice way. That's when we get those unfortunate encounters, which are rare. But it is important to just understand that you're being bear smart. You're taking all the precautions to make sure that you are being safe out there. And, you know, don't go looking for bears. But um, understanding that if you do run into a bear, it's not going to immediately mean your death. But still be bear smart. That's the key there. Joy, thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Joy Spear Chief Morris is an Indigenous and African-American journalist uh, for a national news reporter for the Globe and Mail, uh, writing about bears, grizzly bears in particular, in a new program that Parks Canada is launching to make people be more bear aware of particular grizzly bear behavior. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been talking about this case involving the Ministry of Children and Family Development and those the, just the horrific conditions of those two children in foster care beaten so badly that one was killed and the other critically injured. Now, the two foster parents are going to jail. They've gone to jail. They will be there for 10 years for manslaughter. But that's not enough. You know, earlier with Vaughn Palmer, we were discussing this case. Like, yes, the representative for children and youth will be investigating. And yes, people have lost their jobs as a result of this. But so many people knew about this and didn't do anything. Children didn't show up at school. Nobody reported that. People in the community saw. Nobody reported that. And it is a struggle for any child who is in that system, as we're going to learn more about right now with the help of our contributor, Scott Chance. Hi, Scott. Hi, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really difficult story. So terrible, yeah. Yeah, but I had a chance to talk to a survivor. His name is Tom Watson. He is an author, a speaker. He wrote a great book called Man Shoes. He, over the course of his life, was in and out of 13 different foster homes and uh, now has a pretty great story that he shares and wants to share with a lot of people about um, what needs to change and how uh, he sort of overcame in that scenario. But I asked him if he thought that this was something that has sort of come up lately or if it's kind of always been this way, these issues with the system. Well, yeah, I I think uh, the system has a lot of... uh laws in it. This is a, a decades-old uh, challenge. Stresses are very high and uh, families are under pressure and, and there seems to be more and more children entering the foster care system. Um, so maybe one of the root things that needs to be looked at is how do we support families more? You know, when a child moves into fo- the foster care system, um, the goal of the ministry is to always get the child back to the parents, the birth parents. Um, so if you're a birth, birth parent or birth parents who have struggled with drug addiction or alcoholism or, or whatever it is that you're struggling with, uh, you are coached to go get help, to go through programs, to get yourself more stable. And meanwhile, your child is in foster care. And if you do X, Y, Z, the, the goal is really to bring the children out of foster care and place them back with the family. That's what happened to me, but then what happened for me is that, you know, the reality of it is is that uh, parents fail again. You know, the the rehab program, uh, you know, the the rate of failure is is quite high, so then you get put back into the foster care system. So now you've you've left your home, you've gone to the foster care system, you're there for a period of time, your parents do what they need to do, then you move back to the foster care your parents they fail then you move back into the foster care system you just go in and out and so the stability for the child is completely broken tom let me ask you was that, was that your experience were you in a foster home and then back at home and then a foster home and then back at home or was it foster home to foster home to foster home and in that yeah. case what causes you to have to if you're not going home in between what causes you to have to leave one foster home to go to another foster home yeah, so there, there's a good question for you. You know, what people don't realize is that, number one, it's, it's a great gift to have somebody like the Watsons take you in. And they're a rare breed to take in a child that is not your own. That's, that's step number one, just even at that, even if the child was well-behaved. That's a big step for a lot of, of people. What people don't realize with foster care children is we're broken. Mm-hmm. We're not your normal children. And I always say to people, when you, are not lo- when you feel unloved as a child, you become unlovable. Hmm. And so we come into foster homes in a big mess, and we have a lot of straightening out to do. So that there in itself uh, is why a lot of uh, families are not fostering, because it is a massive task to take on a foster child. There's a whole adjustment and disruption if they have their own children and then bring in a foster child. And then the second really big issue for foster parents is that 
you you don't bring somebody into your home if you're a good person and not get attached. Hmm. And then to have that child removed from you and placed back in into uh, a, a home uh, with parents that were struggling and failing, there's an, an emotional attachment that rips their hearts out. And in the end, they look at themselves and they say, I can't do that again. So that's what happened for me was the Watsons took in a very, very damaged child. What made them different that other foster parents should model? So the first thing that everybody needs is a home and uh, a, a forever home. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if you if you believe you have a forever home, uh, there is a there is a comfort in that. Even as a young child, you need a forever home. And the second thing that they provided me was hope. The home provides you the basis, the ground floor, or the you know the 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 stability to actually see that you can have a good life. And then the hope part. And I, I always say hope, and, I, and then I say it, hope is helping other people excel. You need people in your life that come into you and really invest and, and say you can excel, and we're here to help you, and we're going to surround you with the right community that is going to help you. And, and the third thing that they taught me was that I have to appreciate myself because most foster children believe that they're not worthy because when you're thrown around, uh, you know, you're not in your, your, your birth parents' home anymore and you've gone in and out of foster care through so many homes, you believe you're damaged goods and you become damaged goods even more because you believe that. And so what they, they provided to me was a home. They had the time to provide the home because they were re- retired. They provided me with hope, helping other people excel. They provided me with the, the, the feeling of loved, that you're loved and you're worthy to be here. You can do this. You're, you're supposed to be here. Hmm, and, great. Uh, so those three, those three things are, are what children need to make it work. Just a little bit of insight into the foster care system from a survivor. That's Tom Watson. He's the author of Man Shoes. He put it so well, Scott. Just to understand, like, you know, we we talk in terms of, oh, the foster care system and kids bouncing around. But to hear it, hear him talk about it, but what that does to a child, it's heartbreaking. That and also the thing that really got me is like when he talks about the implication, what what it means to a family Mm -hmm. as well, that, that the sacrifices that they make to give someone else an opportunity like that. That's pretty incredible too. And just that feeling of belonging, like for a child, that is so huge. So that you're wanted somewhere is all any child wants to feel. Powerful stuff, hey? So powerful. Uh, Thank you for that story. Amazing. Uh, That is Tom Watson, who was speaking to our Scott Schantz, who he lived in 13 different foster homes. He's now an author, speaker, and founder of yourbetterlife.com. Talk to him as part of our ongoing coverage in these case of the Ministry of Children and Family Development, although I feel like we do have to expand it now, given the conversation we had with Vaughn earlier, where we now know what the judge said in the case of the two foster parents who the judge sent to jail for the horrific abuse of these two children, and that is that everyone failed these children, not just the system, but society at large failed these children. This is Mornings with Simi. The RCMP needs to do a better job of responding particularly around community needs. Now, there's a lot of people with different ideas about what that could be, but I think an openness to looking at different models is going to be important, but a conversation with Canadians, with premiers, with municipalities about their future, about the best way to respond to uh, policing is, is something we have to be having as a country. Isn't that interesting? That is a conversation that the Prime Minister had with uh, TV station CTV Atlantic just in the last 48 hours, as a matter of fact, talking about policing and potentially transforming what a national police force looks like. Now, the RCMP, as we know, has several different functions in this country, and one of them is to provide some local policing. That has been the topic of much debate in Surrey. We expect some kind of... (laughs) 
I'm even reluctant to say it, some kind of final, I put that in air quotes, decision tomorrow when we hear from the provincial government on that. But in the meantime, is it possible that there is a bigger shift that could happen here with the RCMP, that it is moving away from local community policing to becoming something more like a national overseeing police force like the FBI in the United States? Is this kind of transformation even possible? Well, joining us now is Dr. Scott Blanford, who's an assistant professor and program coordinator of policing and public safety at Laurier University. Dr. Blanford, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Nice to be back. What do you think about these conversations? Well, these conversations are nothing new. There's been a number of commissions and studies that have looked at this issue over a number of years, but the the Mass Casualty Commission report is the most recent one and probably the most far-reaching one that has generated this conversation. And it's, I think it's a topic that's well worthy of discussion. Uh, the, the size of the RCMP and the breadth of what they're responsible for policing is just mind-boggling. And to think that they can be all things to all people, I just don't think is realistic and it needs to be reassessed. So what do you think of what we see happening here in our community of Surrey, where they're talking about keeping it when it seems like other levels of government would like to see it gone? It's really interesting. Again, it's the politics at play here. And the the concern is that at the local level, that policing needs of the community are not being met because decisions are being made far away in Ottawa, for example. And there's the lack of a police services board in Surrey that can make those local decisions and reflect community needs. And I think that's one of the driving factors behind it. But it goes back to how policing evolved in Canada, going back to Section 91, Section 92 of the Constitution Act, and who actually has responsibility for policing. In Ontario and Quebec, we have the provincial police services, but in the other provinces and territories, we don't have that. So by default, the RCMP stepped in and took up contract policing, which has expanded exponentially over the years. In your opinion, is it possible for these provinces, Alberta's talked about it, BC's mused about it, to now have their own provincial police force? Well, I think the time has come for that. The problem is that logistically, it's just a massive undertaking. It, it's, it doesn't happen overnight. There's a long period of time of transition. There's not just the police officers in the front line that the public sees, but there's an entire infrastructure behind that that has to be built, has to be funded. And there's a transition period there that's going to take a period of years to get into place. And so it becomes a question of the political will and the financial ability. So are you saying it's too much for the provinces to take on at this point? I don't think it's too much. I think it's a case of where the the decision has to be made and then they have to move forward with a long-term strategic plan on how to implement it. I think it's something that's long overdue and it's something that should move forward, but it has to be done thoughtfully and it has to take into consideration the ability of the taxpayer to fund it. Okay, well, that's the thing, right? I feel like as taxpayers, we want the best service, but we don't want to pay top-of-the-line price for that. That's got to be, we're always cost-conscious. Exactly, exactly. And it's, you know, when you talk about businesses, their reason for existence is to maximize shareholder profit. But for public service, it's to maximize taxpayer value. And so that's what we want to look at. How do we maximize the efficiency and effectiveness of policing at the local level while still maintaining a reasonable cost to it? Okay, how do we do that? (laughs) Well, It's a case of where you have to look at where you can uh, avoid duplication of services. Uh, You know, one of the the positives of having the RCMP at the contract level is just their sheer buying power, for example, when it comes to buying police vehicles. But there are ways to do that at the provincial and local level by forming uh, purchasing consortiums, uh, sharing of services, mutual aid agreements, and, and working all this out. But again, it has to be a very uh, strategic approach into how this would come about. And they have to understand that this is going to take a period of time and the political uh, support for it has to remain beyond the the term of the most current politicians. Right. And there's also something I think for, for those areas that do have their own police force, I think there is a feeling that, well, don't take our police force away from us. Like people will feel like they are losing their connection to their local police. There are. And that's that's one of the major concerns is that you're bringing in a service who isn't local, who has officers that transfer in and transfer out and don't have that same sense of community, don't have that local knowledge. And that's always an issue that you want to keep at your local level. So that's one of the major arguments for 
a localized police service. Okay, so given what you've seen here and, and been observing of what's happening, does it seem odd, though, that like in Surrey, they're talking about keeping the RCMP when all the signs clearly seem to indicate that even the federal government would like to move beyond this? Yeah, there's always the argument that contracting with the RCMP is cheaper because right. you don't have to pay for all that infrastructure. But the problem is, is that you have no control over that infrastructure. So, it, again, it's a very political issue, and it depends on what side of the fence you're on on those politics. But locally is going to be more expensive, generally, but it gives you greater control and flexibility in addressing community needs. And so the question becomes, when you're balancing those two, is that the more important factor for those areas that have that local uh, police service and are comfortable with it? They're supportive of paying a few extra dollars because they feel they're getting better service. But that's the that's the pitch that has to be made, isn't it? Saying this is what it you're is. going to get. This is what you're getting now. This is what you're going to get. Like you have to convince people that it's worthwhile. Yeah, and, and you have to keep in mind that the vast majority of people really have no contact with police on a daily basis, other than perhaps an occasional a traffic stop. So they don't have a true understanding of what resources are actually available within their community and how it's impacting their community. Did you want to make a prediction here, Dr. Blanford? Like, what do you think is going to happen? With the Surrey yes. position? Oh, I, I believe they will go with the Surrey Police Service. It, it, in my mind, it's the most logical choice. Uh, and it, that, I think, will be a catalyst for other municipalities and possibly even the provinces looking at making that move as well. The, the RCMP is just too large. It, it's it's trying to be all things to all people, from traffic tickets to counterterrorism. And it's just it, when you spread yourself too thin, you become inefficient at, at everything. So I think it is time for them to reassess their mandate. Uh, they will still retain the indigenous uh, policing components, and I think that needs to be looked at as well. But that's a whole different discussion. All right, lots of discussions. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Scott Blanford. Yeah, lots of discussions waiting for a decision. Uh, Dr. Blanford is an assistant professor and program coordinator of policing and public safety at Laurier University. So as you can see, it's not just here in Metro Vancouver that we're talking about this issue. It is right across the country. The question of what to do with the RCMP or what should it become is something that is being discussed at the highest levels. You heard the prime minister also talking about that. And that's just in the last couple of days, right? So the so-called decision day is tomorrow once again and of course we'll have complete coverage right here for you on 980 CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. The Vancouver Park Board needs to generate some more revenue. They don't want to be overly reliant on taxpayers for everything and they have a lot of projects that need to be undertaken. So they've got something called a Think Big Strategy. It's a report and it has several different ideas in there for revenue generating, including raising user fees, improve the food and beverage options. I feel like that's a really easy one. Maybe some sponsorship and advertising opportunities. So there's a lot. So this report was developed in response to a motion by our next guest, as a matter of fact. It's Marie-Claire Howard, ABC Park Board Commissioner. Thank you for joining us. Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me. What is the idea behind this Think Big strategy? Well, the, the idea is to look at other options uh, other than uh, tax payers funds uh, to cover our, our cost. Uh, as you know, we have uh, aging facilities and we're also dealing with climate change. We're also dealing with, uh, with a larger population and that puts a lot of pressure on, uh, on our um, amenities. And we need to find new ways, to creative ways, to uh, generate the funds we need to keep everything running. Okay, so how 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 much more new funding, I guess, are, are we looking well, at here? You know, when you're looking at, there are so many things that are broken and are not getting fixed because of a lack of funds or lack of uh, uh, staff capacity. Uh, we need to address this. I'm going to take a very, uh, very simple example is the... Um, the concession stand at uh, at uh, Jericho Beach, uh, West Concession Stand, which is closed on on a, in a beautiful summer uh, because of some plumbing issues that uh, apparently um, uh, serious enough that uh, we need to do a serious redo there. So this is just an example of something that should not be closed. It should be addressed, and the reason it's not addressed is for lack of, of uh, staff capacity to, to look into it, but also in terms of funding. 
Um, so the the idea behind the Think Big is to try to think about a different model and working with, we know, we've heard from the uh, uh, various business uh, communities that there is a desire to be working closely with the park. Uh, so why not uh, get married, if you want, and work with uh, with businesses to address some of the issues that Parkboard does not have the uh, capacity to, to handle. Okay, like what? So are we talking about charging more for a lot of the services at the park? Okay, so the charging more, uh, staff uh, came up with this recommendation of increasing fees uh, in response to uh, an engagement with the population in Vancouver saying that they thought that the fees were very low and they would pay more for some of the services that are being offered in our parks. Now, we want to be very cautious here that it's very important to us that our services are uh, affordable to everyone. So the, the staff will be uh, having to look into raising fees ju- judiciously uh, so that they make sense and they still are affordable for everyone. Um, but some of them are really easy. When we're looking at golf courses, for instance, we must have the cheapest golf courses in the world. I mean, I haven't done a, a survey, but, but uh, w- w- the golf courses, the fees are we're low, lower even that UBC, which is not a park board facility. So right there, to me, there's a red flag that we're undercharging for, for, for a great facility. We also believe that we should look at what uh, European cities and some cities in BC, like, uh, like Kelowna and Victoria and Whistler do, is charging a different fee for out-of-town people. Uh, and what about like times of day? So you feel like there could be a lot of a lot of room to move when it comes to the a, fees. There's a lot of room to reinvent the fee schedule, so we would generate more funds without creating hardship. Okay, so what is that process going to be like? Because we know that the golf is one of the biggest ways that the park board generates revenue. Correct. Yes. So uh, so there's a park board strategy uh, that is going to be. Uh, going forward and that's not quite uh, quite ready it's not i don't think it's even being addressed right now by staff uh, but we have asked staff to dissociate the review of the fees from the actual strategy uh, so hopefully by uh, january of 2024 and the budget of 2024 we will be able to count on higher revenues from from golf and the golf is just one example uh, parking is another is another another a huge source of revenue from, from for park board, which is also not being maximized at this point. It, it sounds like it'll be right across the board then, Commissioner, so people should be prepared for that. Yeah, people should be prepared for that, but it will be done uh, and taking, taking into account that our primary goal is to remain affordable for Vancouver residents. Right. But there's so much work that needs to be done here, too. So are, are residents yeah. going to be able to have their say on this? Well, uh, yes. I mean, staff is, is, uh, is proposing to, uh, to add an uh, infrastructure fee, for instance. This is something that's uh, it's a new idea. And obviously, we need to, uh, to consult with the public to see how that, that would fare. Uh, I personally would like to focus more on on the the the, the larger changes that we, we we are hoping to do, which is having more partnership with with the uh, with businesses, you know, for running concessions or adding some uh, some cafe like a beach cafe at the beach. You know, right now, it, if you want to go and have a lunch at the beach, you actually have to drive there with your table and your chairs and your and your uh, barbecue and you know everything you need. To, to, to make your lunch or dinner while the kids, you know, play in the sand. Yeah, wouldn't it be nicer if you could just take a bus or take your bike and go down there and sit at a cafe and be served a lunch? And this is done in other places around the world. I know you, uh, make, you make it sound so easy, but that I was, I was thinking as you were speaking, I was saying, we've, have we ever had that? Like, I just, it no, just feels like no, it's been a long we, time since we've had that. We, we haven't had that in Vancouver. But because just because we haven't had it doesn't mean we can't have it. Uh, and I think, you know, I think we're ready. The city is ready for this. Uh, it's just a question, you know, if we can transform those, those 
parking lots, which are so busy in the summer, uh, with people desperately turning around, you know, looking for a spot that will never come up. If you could just get all those people off their cars into onto bikes, onto electric bikes, or in, in buses, and then you could come to the beach to actually enjoy the, the beauty of a beach, wouldn't that be great? It would be. Okay, so what is the timeline like, do you think, for these? Uh, well, um, you know, I come from the uh, private sector. My timeline is is, uh, is not the same as uh, how governments work. So uh, it's something I'm learning. Uh, so I I was hoping when I presented the motion in January, I was naively opening, hoping that we would have a, a, a big... <laughs> you you thought traffic. it would be done by this summer. Is that it? Not, not done completely, but I thought we would have a pilot, you know, just a little cafe. There are some cafes where it's just a couple of tables and umbrellas, and it's not a big investment. It's, it can even be a food truck serving the food. I was naively hoping that we could have one pilot this summer. Obviously, that did not happen. Uh, but I am hoping that we can get something going for next summer uh, at this point. And I certainly hope that we can move quicker in fixing what, what's spoken, like the concession, the concession stand at, uh, at Spanish banks. Because uh, it's really a shame to see this closed. It really is. Uh, Wilson, thank you so much for your chat about that. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. That's Marie Claire Howard, ABC Park Board Commissioner, talking about you know a pretty big shakeup at the way the Park Board does things and generates revenue. They have a long list of maintenance projects that need to be done, things that need to be worked on, things that need to be completely replaced. And they said they don't want to just rely on the taxpayer for that. They think there's ways to do that, raising golf course fees. I mean, that's hugely uh, popular golf courses, right? Those City of Vancouver golf courses. So paying more to golf, paying more to park, uh, paying more to eat, or just more options for you to eat. Sponsorship opportunities. I mean, that's a pretty big change that we have not seen before when it comes to parks and facilities in Vancouver. What do you think? Would you welcome this? There is no doubt that there is a lot of stuff that needs updating. Good points, though, about being able to go to the beach and just have more options of, you know, what you can eat, what you can have at the beach. Was that something you'd support?